It's been a couple of weeks now since we last looked at the book of Hebrews. But when we did, a couple of Sundays ago, we finished looking at a long section which showed how Jesus is our great high priest. Chapter 8 told us Jesus is the only bridge to heaven. He's the only way to relationship with God. Then chapter 9 began to show how Jesus is the bridge to heaven. We heard that he is the mediator of a new covenant. That covenant brings a deeper cleansing than the old covenant could bring. It doesn't just clean us up on the outside, it cleanses even our consciences. When we come to Jesus, we can experience peace with God. How did Jesus make that possible? Well, we were told he offered himself in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. His blood sealed this new covenant. In Christ and only in Christ, we are accepted and brought near to God. And the beginning of chapter 10 explained Jesus' sacrifice of himself was the one perfect sacrifice. Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated endlessly because they were never enough. And the sacrifices you and I might bring are never enough to please God and pay for our sin. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was once for all. Now he sits in heaven. He sits because his work of salvation is done. His one sacrifice was enough to make us holy in God's sight. His sacrifice meets our need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And Jesus' sacrifice changes our future. We used to be enemies of God. Now, in Christ, we are children of God. In the future, we will share in Jesus' reign on this earth. That's what our great high priest has done. Now, how do we respond to what Jesus has done? Well, the first response is to put our trust in Jesus and what he's done. But then after that, how are we to live? That's what the next section of Hebrews is about. So turn with me, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. In the church Bible, it's page 1208. And in the large print Bibles, 1872. And we're going to pick up just after where we ended last time. So we'll begin reading at verse 19 and read through to the end of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. 
For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely Do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? And who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is God's word. In previous sections, Hebrews focused on the new covenant in Christ's blood. Now the focus is on new covenant life. Once we put our trust in this great high priest, once we've abandoned our efforts at self-salvation, once we've acknowledged his once-for-all sacrifice is our only hope for salvation, once we've embraced all of the truths we focused on over Easter, what then for us? Well, this passage gives us three answers. Live the life Jesus won for you. Think about the unthinkable alternative. And remember, perseverance is worth it. So first of all, in verses 19 to 25, live the life Jesus won for you. When we started looking at Hebrews, we learned a little bit about the men and women this letter was written to. In their place and time, it was not easy to live as a Christian. There was a cost to it. These people were marginalized in one way or another. They were seen by the wider society as a bit deluded. And actually, 
a bit dangerous. We'll see later in this passage, living as a Christian brought persecution in one way or another. This is written to Christians who are wondering if following Christ is worth it. And before the writer even mentions persecution, he says, focus instead on the privilege of being a Christian. Look at the life Jesus won for you. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. In other words, look what you have in Jesus. Look what privileges became yours when you trusted in Jesus. This is a summary, really, of what the last three chapters have said in greater detail. Jesus' body was torn on the cross. And what his death achieved was symbolized by the tearing of the temple curtain. For generations, that thick, heavy curtain had made it really clear that there was a separation between humanity and God. The curtain barred the way into God's presence in the most holy place. That was the innermost room of the tabernacle. But the tearing of Jesus' body tore the barrier between us and God. Now we have permission and we have full authorization to come to God. Not walking into a room within the tabernacle, but in prayer we have access right to heaven's throne. And when we come, we find a welcome. There's no irritation from our Father. There's no sense that we're intruding when we come. We are welcomed there without reserve. He smiles on us as children who belong. Because in Christ, that's who we are. And beside our Father stands our brother, the priest who serves the church. That's what the house of God means here. It's not a building. It is the community of men and women bought with Christ's blood. Jesus, our brother, serves the church by interceding for us. That does not mean he tries to convince his Father to put up with us. Or throw us a few blessings, like a few bones to keep us quiet. No, when we read in the Bible that Jesus intercedes for us, it means he asks his Father, and he always receives from his Father whatever we need. Every specific mercy and grace that our situation requires. So that you and I can be sustained in our circumstances. So we can move one day closer to eternal glory. This is the life Jesus won for us. A life of access to God and favor with God. You and I who are prodigal sons and daughters are welcomed into the life of heaven. 
And so verse 22 tells us, use the access you have to God. Since all of these things are true, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Why would we hold back from the greatest privilege in the universe? The privilege of drawing near to God. Why would we let a day go by without taking advantage of this access we have? Think for a moment of someone you really admire. Maybe it's a musician, maybe a sports personality, maybe a figure from world history. If you were given an invitation to meet that person, you'd be all over it, wouldn't you? Quivering with excitement at the opportunity. So, the writer of Hebrews says, let's be all over this invitation that we have to draw near to God in prayer, in song, in listening to his word. When we're Christians, we do not pray and sing and listen as neutral observers. We pray and sing and listen as God's own children. We're praying and singing to a loving Father. And when we hear his word, it is his word to us. Through his written word, the creator of the universe communicates with his children. You and I don't open our Bibles just to try and analyze an ancient document. We open our Bibles to hear our Father speaking to us in love. Speaking words of reassurance and rest and promise. And yes, sometimes correction as well. But when you and I are in Christ, this word is always, always a word of love to us. Even when it corrects us. It is the correction of a father who could not love us more. A father who loves us enough to say to us, not that way, daughter. Come this way instead. Not that way, son. Come this way instead. Who wouldn't want that kind of wise, loving, careful correction in our lives? When verse 22 speaks about coming with a sincere heart and full assurance and with cleansed hearts and consciences, those are not things you and I have to do before we can come to God. They are what Jesus has already done for us. A sincere heart is one of the new covenant blessings God promised in the Old Testament. He said his law would be written on the hearts of his people. Jesus brought that about 
through his new covenant sacrifice. He dealt then with our heart problem. Both the uncleanness of our heart and the fact that God's law used to be foreign to our hearts. We didn't love and we didn't want to do the things that God called us to do. But now he has given us sincere hearts. And the washed bodies mentioned in verse 22, that's simply the outward sign of what Jesus has done inside of us. It's almost certainly a reference to baptism. That public announcement of our faith is a symbol of how God sees us all the way through. Cleansed and purified right to the core. And remember the point of these verses. They are a call to make use of the standing we have with God. To take advantage of it. If you make a royal mess of this week that's ahead of you, you make a real mess of it in a bunch of different ways, or maybe just one really big way, and you feel like the most unworthy, rubbish Christian. If that happens, the devil is going to tell you to keep your distance from God. He's going to tell you, you need to stay away until God has had time to cool off a little bit. But these verses tell us not to listen to the devil. He's a liar. Jesus said the devil is the father of lies. The truth is, you and I do not draw near to God on the basis of how good we've been this week. We draw near because Jesus' broken body made a way for us to draw near. His blood has made us clean. We draw near because we are children loved by our Father. Now there will often be times when we have things that need to be owned up to in our lives. Things we need to ask forgiveness for and that we need to deliberately turn away from. But if we are Christians, we are confessing our sin to a devoted father, not to an angry judge. That's why verse 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. Notice there, it is not our own faithfulness we're counting on. We're relying on God's faithfulness. In the Old Testament, he promised a new covenant. A way for sinful people to be reconciled to him. Now in Christ, God is faithful to what he promised. One of our songs says, Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I heard someone say recently, God is not living by faith in us and our performance. We live by faith in him. God's faithfulness is the firm and secure anchor for our souls. God's faithfulness is the reason we do not listen to the devil when he tempts us to despair 
over our failures and to draw back from our Father in heaven. We draw near to God because he is faithful to us. He has cleansed us by Christ's blood and his loving welcome will never grow cold. Let's make use of this access we have to heaven. Verses 24 and 25 add another aspect of the life Jesus won for us and living that life. They tell us to love the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. These verses remind us Jesus did not die to save a bunch of individuals. Jesus died to save a people, the family of God. That is how the New Testament refers to the church. Now in Britain today, you don't need me to tell you that the church is not a powerful majority in society. To many people today, the church looks like an irrelevant thing. And that means the church today looks just as it looked when the New Testament was written. According to the Apostle Paul, when he looked at the New Testament church, not many of the people he saw in it were wise by human standards. Not many of the people in the church were influential. Not many of them were of noble birth. The church did not grow and spread because the people in the church were world beaters. The church grew and spread because God's heart was set on the church. The church was, and until Jesus comes back, the church will always be the focus of God's plans on this earth. God's spirit does not live in the parliament building in Brussels or Westminster or Holyrood or Washington. The church is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. The church made up of people and the church that looks so puny and behind the times. But in reality... The Bible tells us the church is ahead of the times. The church is just waiting for the rest of creation to catch up. The church is where we see the beginnings of God's new creation. Wherever the church appears locally around the world, that is where heaven is breaking into earth. And the fellowship of men and women bought and cleansed by Christ's blood. This is the community where we see the love and the power of God in action. When Jesus died on the cross, he won for you and me the privilege of belonging to his church. The privilege of loving his church. The privilege of a life in fellowship with God's people. 
So verse 24 says, let us consider, let us think very carefully how we can deepen and extend and put into action our love for the church. And you and I cannot do that. It's simply impossible to do without loving the people who make up the church. The New Testament never refers to a building as the church. The early Christians didn't even have buildings. They met in homes for the first few hundred years. The church is made up of living stones, people. All of us with our peculiarities and our quirks, our weaknesses, our rough edges, chips on our shoulders, But notice the writer of Hebrews does not say, consider how you might moan about all those imperfections in the church. He doesn't say, think carefully how you can air your grievances and broadcast how disappointed you are with the church. All of us could do that very, very easily. We've all been misunderstood. We've all been hurt. We've all been let down. But the world is full of discouragers and scoffers. You find that at work every day, don't you? Go out of here and you find bitter, angry tongues everywhere you go. But as members of Christ's church, let's recognize the privilege we have of belonging to the church. Let's seek to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We can all see the imperfections of the church. Of course we can. But we are called to love it enough to get involved in making it what it is called to be. And that cannot happen unless we discipline ourselves not to give up meeting together. Think about this yourself. If you participated in corporate worship just when you felt like it, how often would you be here? Three quarters of the time? Half of the time? Maybe less than that. If you can when you felt like it. But we continue meeting together not just to get for ourselves. We meet together also to give to our brothers and sisters. To encourage one another. That's how verse 25 puts it. And so we have to keep reminding ourselves, church is not just about me. One writer says, we are Christians not only for our own sake, but also for the sake of others. Another one says, every Christian needs the encouragement of every other Christian. So yes, when we meet on Sunday or Thursdays for the prayer meeting or home groups, yes, we come to meet God together. And we come to encourage one another. To spur one another on to love and good deeds. That takes thought It takes planning, and it takes actually participating in one another's lives. 
beyond Sundays and Thursdays. But obviously among the men and women who first received this letter, some were deciding not to make the effort anymore. Verse 25 says some of them had formed the habit of not meeting together. Why? Why had some of these people bailed out of Christian fellowship? Well, later we're given one reason. Some stopped coming because of fear. Commitment to church is a way of nailing your colors to the mast. Anyone who's watching begins to realize where your loyalty lies. And in the early church, as well as in Britain today, commitment to church is definitely countercultural. You are going against the crowd if you're committed to Christian fellowship. If you want to be a rebel today, go to church. That is one reason some of these people had abandoned Christian fellowship. But commentators on this culture and time tell us there were plenty of other reasons. Main among them being just preoccupation with other things. Business, for example. And on any given week, all of us here could come up with good reasons for not meeting together. But verse 25 reminds us, in the light of what is ahead of us, where would we rather be? It says we're to be all the more eager to meet together as we see the day approaching. That is the day of Christ's return. When we think of that day, doesn't it give us great incentive to meet together? So we can give and receive encouragement. So we can spur others on and be spurred on ourselves. Loving the church of Jesus Christ, using the access you have to God, those are two ways you and I live the life Jesus won for us. And that gives us then the context we need to understand the next section of our passage. In this section, the writer calls us to think about the unthinkable alternative. Let me read verses 26 to 31 again. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? And who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is similar to something we read back in chapter 6. 
Back in chapter 6, we heard about people who had had some kind of spiritual experience. They had tasted something of God's power in the church. But time proved their experience was not genuine Christianity. How did that come to light? It was shown in the fact that they deliberately turned their back on Christianity. They renounced it and they walked away. In the end, those people took their stand with those who have contempt for the good news about Jesus. Now we saw at the time, the writer of Hebrews did not accuse anyone reading his letter of being in that state. But he asked them to consider those people. These Christians were to let the horror of those situations spur them on personally to pursue maturity as Christians. Now here in chapter 10, we find something similar. But the difference is, since chapter 6, we have heard so much more about Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. We know he is our one and only hope for peace with God. We know there's no other sacrifice than his body broken on the cross. There's no other cleansing than the cleansing he provides. So, having heard all that we've heard, how much more unthinkable is it that we would reject his sacrifice and his cleansing and walk away? Because if we do that, there is no hope of bridging the gap between us and heaven. There is nothing left but death and hell. Verse 26 says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, and the key word there is deliberately. This is talking about a conscious decision. This is not the sin of someone who loves Jesus. This is not the sin of someone who loves Jesus. This is the sin of a man or woman who has heard the truth, but in contempt for the good news about Jesus and in contempt for the Father who sent him, that man or woman chooses a life outside of Christ. We've seen a few moments ago, in his Old Testament promises, God said he would give his new covenant people new hearts. Hearts that love to obey. When you and I sin with a heart like that, then our sin will bring us sorrow. We will hate it and we'll run to God to confess it and renew our fellowship with him. So these verses are not talking about the sin of a man or woman who has a new heart. If you love Jesus and your sin bothers you, then these verses are not talking about you. But if you know about Jesus, you know about his once-for-all sacrifice, and you deliberately refuse to trust your life and your future to him, then allow these verses, please, to wake you up. 
Verse 28 says, those who rejected God's law in the Old Testament, the punishment for those people was physical death. So how much greater will the punishment be for those who reject God's provision in Jesus Christ? You answer the question. God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament was gracious. His law was for the good of humanity. Physical death was a fair punishment for refusing to live under his law. But today, God has shown greater grace. He gave his only son for your salvation. The son poured out his lifeblood so you could be forgiven and made holy. And the Holy Spirit testifies to Christ's work. He does that in the pages of the New Testament. He does it through preaching that presents the truth about Jesus. He does it through the life of Christ's church. So what hope could there be for the person who insults the spirit of grace by rejecting the spirit's testimony to Jesus and trampling the the Son of God underfoot, treating his blood as an unholy thing? That is what you are doing if you refuse to bow before the cross and throw yourself on the mercy of Christ's blood. The greater the provision from God, the greater the judgment for rejecting it. That's why verse 31 says, Speaking of those who reject Christ, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not a dreadful thing for God's people. When you and I take shelter under Christ's blood, then we have every reason to draw near to God with confidence. That's what we've been told. But if we persist in rejecting Christ's blood, then we have every reason to tremble at the thought of being near to God. Because outside of Christ, there is no hope for us. And so surely it is unthinkable we would walk away from this great salvation in Christ. The writer of Hebrews expects his readers to say with him, yes, of course that is unthinkable. We want to draw closer to God not be among those who walk away from him and reject him. And so having reminded these Christians of the life Jesus won for them, having asked them to think about the unthinkable alternative to new covenant life, now he encourages them to remember perseverance is worth it. These Christians obviously are feeling the heat in the present. They're feeling the cost of following Jesus in terms of ridicule and marginalization, maybe even direct persecution. But in verse 32 to 34, 
our writer reminds these brothers and sisters, this is not a new thing. You've been through tough times before. He says they endured a great conflict full of suffering. They lost out in terms of material possessions and they were denied justice. Some of them were thrown in prison for their faith. But he says they joyfully accepted all that. Why? Because, verse 34, you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You realized you had peace with God. You had access to God's throne of grace. You had eternal life. Knowing you possessed those greatest things, you could joyfully accept the loss of lesser things. And so, verse 35 says, since you've been through this kind of thing before, don't go to pieces now. When you face new trials, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Keep your eyes on your great high priest. He will supply what you need. Keep going with your confidence set on him. And, verse 37, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Our great high priest will return as the conquering king to claim his people and bring his kingdom in all of its fullness. Perseverance is the calling of every single Christian. In times of prosperity, we have to persevere. In good times, we have to persevere in remembering where our true hope lies. It is not in our prosperity. It's in Christ. It's not in our physical health. It's in Christ. And in times of adversity, then we persevere in remembering whatever we might be losing, we cannot lose the greatest things. Whoever rejects us on earth, we are welcomed with open arms in heaven. And beyond these present troubles, there is an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. If you and I find ourselves treated as outsiders in this world, that should not surprise us. Someone has said, we are out of tune with the present world because we are in tune with the future one. And so until Jesus returns, the Christian life will always be a life of endurance and faith. That's what chapter 11 is going to tell us at length. It will always be a life of endurance and faith, but not faith in ourselves. Faith in God. And so verse 38 quotes God's words from the Old Testament. My righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has won an amazing life for us. 
a life of access to God and fellowship with God's people. What other life could possibly satisfy us? What other saviour could possibly love us like Jesus? What other prize could cause us to turn away from this life in Christ? So, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. And let's respond together with a new commitment to take our stand on God's amazing grace. We find that grace beneath the cross of Jesus.